In this week's episode of Nitty Gritty, we have Danny Deegan with us. Danny is the owner of Your Living Proof, addiction recovery company. You're going to love his story. It's powerful and he gets super open and vulnerable about his journey and what his addiction was and how he fought through it, ultimately how he got out of it. It's something that everyone can benefit from and we're excited to share it with you. Also, some fun and exciting news. We have a sponsor for Nitty Gritty. We want to thank Perk Energy. And if you don't know what Perk is, shame on you. Go back to episode 13 with Rena Doman on it and listen to Hug in a Mug, Perk Energy. She has given all of our listeners the opportunity to purchase Perk at a discount. So if you want some Perk Energy, go and put in the code Nitty Gritty when you check out and get 15% off all of your Perk purchase. With that, we are excited to get into the episode with Danny. So let's do it. Let's get down to the Nitty Gritty. Welcome, everybody, to the Nitty Gritty today. We have Danny Deaton with us. Yeah, buddy. Danny's in the house. Glad to be here. So, Danny, we actually met Danny through Modest Shopping, Jason and Bridget. That's right. So, after they came on, Jason reached out and said, You've got to get to know Danny a little bit. And we just kind of met via social media, funny enough. Yeah. And then a couple weeks ago, you guys really were, bonded. We, we became <laughs> we like did, BFF. I mean, we met in a magical setting. <laughs> which was at a jazz game. Yeah. <laughs> if yep. you want to become best friends with me, you meet me at a jazz game. And if you can be louder than me at a jazz game. But you got to tell, you gotta tell the story. It's going to be a good go. story. The story. About how you. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to my seat and I walk past this guy. I'm like, gosh, this guy looks really familiar. And I sit down. And he literally like two, like his wife is next to me. They've got their kids. So we're like right next to each other. And the whole time I'm just running through my head, like, how do I know this guy? And then it kind of clicks. I'm like, I think I know it's from Instagram. So I pull out my phone. I start scrolling through Instagram. (laughs) Like, okay. And then I hit your profile, which is your living proof. He's all, you're that your living proof guy. And I'm like, somebody knows me. (laughs) Wow. That probably felt pretty good. But what's funny, your name's nowhere on your profile. Yeah. So I couldn't be like, hey, are you Danny? So I was like, I was like scrolling through. I'm like, I don't know this guy's name. So like, I think it was a timeout and your wife had taken the kids out. I was like, dude, this is weird, but are you your living? Yeah. I was like, I am. Yes. (laughs) But then we quickly found out that both of us were there for what was most important is the love of the jazz. So go jazz. And here we are. Yes. And here we are. So no, but today I'm really excited. What's fun is... I don't know a t- I don't know your full story. Yeah. Jason just talked very highly of you. And what we've learned is it's more fun to hear the story live on the podcast. Like yeah. our reactions can be like no genuine and authentic. Yep. And so basically what I know besides our affinity for the jazz <laughs> is you're running Living Proof Intervention. Yeah. Which is an addiction recovery program, right? It is. Yep. And so we're going to jump into this, but before we kind of jump to where we're at today, tell us really quickly kind of where you came from. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a native here. I, I tried leaving a couple of times as I got older. I lived in Chicago for a little bit. I moved to Hawaii for a little bit, but I always made it back. And I don't know if it was the love of the mountains or what, but I always made it back. People badmouth Utah, but it's a hidden gem. So keep badmouthing it. So we keep people away. But um, grew up in the Sandy Draper area, attended Alta High School a long time ago. Um, 
and life was great. I was involved in every sport possible. I loved girls. I loved anything to do with playing sports and having fun with guys and getting into a little bit of trouble, but I was a pretty good kid. And uh, Siblings? How many siblings? So I'm the oldest of four. Okay. I have two brothers and a sister. What does your dad do or what does he do? So my dad, my parents are from Carbon County, Price, Utah. Um, my dad is legitimately my hero. He's my actual best friend. Some guys say that and might be cliche, but in this case, it is real. He came from not much um, and everything he did in his life, he did the hard way, the right way. It's kind of that old school story. I Later on in life, I had a business partner who described it as the purple unicorn, right? Like the guy who every piece of equipment, every building, every employee, they paid cash and never got a loan. But his claim to fame was he invented, he was the inventor of the mouse mat and they manufactured 95% of, of mouse mat, mouse wow. pads worldwide. Like a mouse pad. You know that little yeah, yeah, yeah. foam pad that you roll your mouse around on for a long time. Wow. So that was it. And then they had several other products like accessories, like those little gel rest rests. That Hold on. In front of the key. Did your dad have a partner in that or does he? Yeah, he did. What was the partner name? Don Watkins. I know Don. You do? That's <laughs> yes. small world. So he was like my second dad, Don, growing oh up. Oh my so, gosh. We're, we're trying to get, maybe get Don and your dad to come on together. Yeah. Because I was trying to get Don. Oh, they have an entrepreneur story that is, they don't exist anymore. No, Again, I, it was described as a purple unicorn because- they didn't do it on credit. They didn't oh get gosh, investors. I can't they didn't believe your money. dad was yeah. partner. That's crazy. It is. Then they started by, hey, let's do this. And then one was so sold on the idea. They sold his house. Don sold his house. Yep. They got a motor home. My dad would package the product. Don would drive around the country. I mean, how inefficient nowadays when you look at it, but drive around the country in a motor home to sell yeah. the product. My dad would package it and it was just crazy. But yeah, good family life. And um I enjoyed great examples of how to live, but, uh, later on in life, it, I think much like most people, it takes some twists and turns. Right. And truthfully, I mean, to get to the nitty gritty, which I love this show because I use that phrase all the time. I was the Eagle Scout piano playing college graduate return missionary lettered in three different sports guy that just checked all the boxes did. And all of those I did with, a full heart and full intent. And because of several things, it was found myself end up being homeless and strung out on every drug known to man and literally found dead on more than one occasion. And, um, the redemption since then has been nothing short of a miracle. And it's been a lot of hard work, but I have for that reason started this it's not a program. People kind of get misunderstand. There are several incredible programs. What I'm trying to do is help people get to those programs. Okay. So almost like the awareness of it. Yeah. So, you know, so a lot of it is helping people get out of their own way. Um, and intervention is a word that I think people tend to be misguided on. You see, there's a show on TV Amy. show. Yeah. That's what we all think about. <laughs> so crazy. Like everybody yeah. gather in a circle. Yeah. Let's just let's write trap letters. Let's yeah. them. Oh let's my gosh. Drop a bomb. Yeah. yeah. So no, it's more of being a liaison and, 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 and spending a long time, a few years researching and compiling information about all these facilities, what they do, what their bread and butter is, what the economics are behind them, you know, whether they're faith based or not, spiritually based or not. Um, so that once families 
decide, okay, enough's enough, then I help them give the best chance possible. I hold their hand. I walk them through the process. Having been through it firsthand and knowing what works and what doesn't, nothing is a philosophy of mine whatsoever. It's a proven model that works. And so it's kind of just helping them. A lot of times the problem is, is that it's much like my story. My addiction never needed to last as long as it did ever, but I needed support in order for it to do that. I needed serious support. I mean, to be a professional drug addict, it requires support and a professional drug yes. addict. I've never heard that. I mean, term in before. order to carry, there's functioning. There's you know. And oh, eventually. I mean, talk about resourceful people. Oh, they are. I mean, drug addicts. Wow. Yeah. I mean, one one point. I have a this stake fireside coming up here for the predominant faith here in Utah. And I, uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm gonna totally steal that. Yes, it's the predominant one. faith here. In but Utah. one of the subjects is that you know, right? They're everyone in the family looks at them because there's a spotlight. Like they're a wreck. Yep. But they are the most resourceful. Be scrappy like a drug addict. We're gonna manipulative, yep. persuasive people you will ever Best meet. Best salesman on earth ever. They get what they want. So it's just kind of helping families know how to avoid that. But you know, I never as a kid dreamed that this would be the skill set, a special skill set that I have. I never dreamed that it would be a talent that I have, which would be helping people through one of the most ruthless life destructive things that affects our society. But, you know, ultimately from the darkest point of my life, I decided I, I, I need to do something different. So, you know, I don't love talking about myself, but I spent the last decade owning and operating some restaurants. And I always tell people, I say, if there's anything harder than overcoming an addiction to heroin and cocaine, just go and open a couple of restaurants. <laughs> that would be one thing harder. So I did that for the last 10 years. And recently this, uh, company, honey, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> honey? See, I'm pretty cool. Yes, I am living proof of that also <laughs> because of that. But we, as a company, it merged and it had an opportunity for an exit and, I decided, hey, this would be a one chance at my life. I'm not getting any younger. I'm 42 years old. This would be the one chance and time to pursue something that I loved. I saw a serious need for and something that I was good at. And here we are, living proof intervention. So so you did the restaurants after you turned things around. I did. I was out of jail Ooh, for a year. It's like one addiction to another. It was. But I mean, staying busy, which I imagine is probably... A good thing. It was. And I think the desperation to regain what I had lost in life, because, you know, when it started, my addiction lasted some time. I was man, I managed to graduate from the University of Utah. Well, hold on. So let's, let's, let's start with that. Yeah. So growing up, good childhood. Yeah. No problems growing no problems. up. I mean, I, in high I mean, school, you're a normal to, yeah, kid. I got in trouble. We partied and did things, but eventually I, there was this magical moment after high school, you know, most everybody around here is preparing for college or they're getting ready to go do a mission or something else productive with life. I moved to Hawaii and we just decided we were going to learn how to become professional surfers. <laughs> well, after a while, I remember laying one night specifically, this was a turning point in my life. I was laying on a boogie board, staring at the moon and we were out fishing in the moonlight. It was a full moon. And I just felt this emptiness inside. It was just this big hole. And I just... I knew what it was and I needed to come home and do something with my life more than what laying on the beach. 
doing the same thing over over and over. So, so how old were you at that point? I was 18 when we went out right after high school, 18, okay. 19. And I came home and I went on an LDS mission at the age of 21 okay. to Brazil. And it was the greatest time of my life. And came home, got married, finished school, started an insurance business, just doing what we do as Americans and <laughs> trying to find that dream and live the dream. And at which point, you know, I had had an injury and I had some different pains in my body and a friend had introduced me to Oxycontin, which is a very interesting drug because it's a popular thing around here. It's if someone really knew what that was for, I don't think we would see it in society. If you were to get hit by a semi and sever all of your limbs, break your pelvis and you were literally dying and they just wanted you to be comfortable <laughs> for your last time here on earth that's what you would take right there's Isn't no it basically need- morphine like what is oxycontin i mean compared to like percocet for example so if you if your grandma had a bottle or your mom had a bottle of percocets in her closet and there was a prescription of 20 or 25 well the equivalent in opium that's in an oxycontin so if you broke an oxycontin in half and you got the smaller part that would have more potency than the entire bottle of percocets holy crap so once someone's hooked on Oxycontin, then the reality is, is which happens quickly. I imagine. I mean, there, there's a romance period with the first few days are amazing. And just to share what it might be like with somebody that doesn't know the first time my buddy, I met him, he's like, he broke a pill in half. So it's like, if you had a smarty, maybe smaller than a smarty and you broke that smarty in half, well, you have this little thing it's like you can barely hold on to. If you broke that in half again and had a quarter of it. Well, if you crushed that up and swallowed it or drank it or snorted it, most people would instantly throw up. It's that strong that your body's reaction would be to just to to throw up. Well, quickly your body enjoys that. And then what happens is, is within days, weeks, you're now taking. So did you first take it to deal with pain? Or yeah, did I did. You first deal with it for recreation. I, you know, there were things in life. I mean, I get into those right now, but it was curiosity, but also because I knew He's like, you know, this will sure help with your pain. And I had serious back pains and I was like, all right, cool. So it looked completely innocent. And had you pain, tried, had you tried anything to that point? Opi- opiates. I had back in high school, you know, if somebody ran across some lower tabs or Percocets, we'd take them, but it was always just periodically and yeah. harmless for fun. But that little bit, it was all it took was something that was almost unrecognizable because it was so small and my life went in a completely different direction. I talk about this a lot, that there are different people in life. There are people like my brothers, my wife, other friends of mine that if they were to take that little quarter of that Oxycontin pill, they don't like it. It that makes them feel uncomfortable, itchy. They want it to go away the second they feel it. There are others like myself the best way to describe it is though the heavens open, the angels are blowing their <laughs> trumpets and that feeling you've been looking for your whole life. It's right. almost like that fulfillment you were looking for yeah. on that boogie board in Hawaii. It is full. Yes, exactly. You are filled. There are no holes. There are no voids. There's nothing. And, but complete joy and euphoria and you feel everything that you've wanted to feel. So that's where it happened. And it didn't happen overnight. You know, we said, there was a progression and I was a functioning addict for quite some time. I, f- I was able to finish college. So you took the first quarter of a pill. Yeah. 
was that did it turn into I want to do this every day or is it I'm going to do this most definitely once a month yep. type of deal like like how does that progression start it felt so good the rest of that day the f- second I woke up the next morning I was like gosh I want to feel that again why so wouldn't the, you yeah why you wouldn't know? you it's like I want to go to Disneyland again yeah that was fun I want to go to Disneyland again and and Literally, one of the things I tell people, especially here in the state, the first thing I help parents understand is, or whoever it is, the family that doesn't understand is that feeling, believe it or not, is incredible. It might be a feeling that you will never experience in life to that degree. So incredible that that's why we're talking about your loved one whose life is upside down and falling apart and everyone else is a ragdoll to what they're doing because it actually feels amazing. So don't forget that, you know, but it started with that. It did. And, and at first you can just do a little bit and you get the same feeling and people don't understand that you can still function. I was actually a better version of myself. I thought at the time I was more outgoing, more confident. I, I just happier. I always looked at the glass half full. And what happens is the master manipulator, Satan has created a very toxic weapon that without even recognizing it, it turns from fulfillment, feeling good, feeling confident and happy to your body eventually needing it and needing more of it and needing other things. And then once someone recognizes there's a problem, they're completely addicted. When you started, how long did the feeling last? Was it just like after you took something, was it yeah, it lasts hour. hours, hours, half the day, most of the day. For most of the day, you know, that drug's so strong that most of the day, you know, they have oxycodones and oxycotons and fentanyl and morphine and it could go on and on. There's new ones coming out every month. But how the, easy was it to get it? Very easy. I mean, at first for someone who doesn't know where and how, it's kind of like someone walking into the gym who hasn't walked in the gym for years, kind of like, what do I do? Well, pretty quickly you become efficient at knowing how to operate machines and watching people and learning from them and things like that. But it, it quickly, you quickly become very, like we said earlier, resourceful. You quickly become very good because it's typically the best someone's ever felt in their life. So why wouldn't they figure out how to regain that or revisit that, you know, with a special skill set at the time, you're thinking this is making me a better version of myself. Yeah. So it's actually better for my wife or my family if I'm taking this yeah. because I'm going to oh, show, justify it. I'm yep. going to show up as a better version of me, oh, 100%. which is better for everyone else yep. around me. Yep. It's it's not a it selfish feeling of no, I just want this for me. It's a I want to help others around me by being a better version yep. of me. You get, you know, you take it, you do it, you use it, you smoke it, you drink it, and you get a two for one. Ultimately, at first, you get that best version of yourself. And truthfully, if you were able to stay there, which I've never heard a person in the history of mankind that did, there was no drug addict or alcoholic that lived to be happily ever after. Right. And right off into the sunset with their beautiful family. But at first it is, it's just impossible. That's why it's the, it is the most masterful manipulation out there. Did you feel like you had to hide it? Yeah. So first it's amazing. No big deal. No one can recognize it. You're awesome. You're happy. You are giving everybody around you your best version of your best self. Well, over time it changes. And the number one thing that 
comes into play is it becomes a secret. And my mantra for life when I have the opportunity to speak in front of people is I live by this. It's our secrets that keep us sick in any aspect of your life, whether that be pornography, gambling, sorrow, depression, drug addictions, closet drinkers, or anything, even if it's that you just don't feel good or don't feel like you fit in. As soon as you have a secret, that secret keeps you sick. It keeps you in the dark and nothing in this world entails more secrets than drug addiction. You are protecting, you'll smeagle on Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) My precious. And he's crawling around on the rocks. just all cracked out. Well, that is a drug addict. They're going to protect that. You don't even know what they're saying or what they're doing or what point they're trying to get to, but they're going to protect it. You know? So what's that? There's a J Cole line that I love. Hip hop guy. Oh, like what's done in the dark will always find a way to shine. Yep. And so, you know, the, something that I'm interested in listening to, because I've had my bouts with, with painkillers. Yeah. I've talked about it before. What, what interests me is how, and maybe you know this, there seems to be, like you said, there, there are people that take things and it doesn't really feel good. But there's also people that take things where it feels good, but they just kind of go, I don't need that again. Yeah. Like it felt good. Yep. Like what, what is it, you know, cause you do hear a lot of people say that it's a disease, mm-hmm. right? That's a hard one for me. That's kind of like me saying like, I'm overweight cause it's a disease. Like to me, that's kind of a cop out. It's like, oh, I'm overweight. I'm overweight cause I eat crap. Right. Yep. But I definitely do feel like my brain chemistry, I'm more prone to addiction. Now I know, I know now a lot of my problem is ADHD. Yeah. You know, I don't produce dopamine. So yep drugs and food and all those things release that release yep. like they make me feel good because i don't really produce that naturally so i know AD, you know folks with adhd are much more prone to addiction yep but what is it in the brain that well no you nailed it right. that that disease so for the first time most governing agencies in the united states so we'll just you know Worldwide, we don't need to go into that. But here in the U.S., the National Institute of Health and most of the governing agencies that dictate things like insurance and benefits and whatnot, um, they recognize addiction now as a disease of the brain. So if you dig into it a little bit more, it's exactly what you said in regards to the dopamine, where there are still studies out there proving that you don't, you are not born with this disease. You may have tendencies right. or you may have addictive tendencies, you know, at a younger age, but where they have proven this to be a brain disease, at least in these governing bodies that look over certain, you know, agencies here is that once someone uses drugs or alcohol in certain quantities for a sustained period of time, it reprograms how their brain actually operates. Right. So no longer like you've experienced it, like you said, which is, you know, kudos to you for even saying that. Um, which is something I'd love to talk about in a minute, but I think that people don't realize what happens is it, it structures and rechanges their brain so much that now it all started with some bad choices, right? You know, no one, well, maybe in a rare occasion, did someone jump on you and smother your face into the ground and inject you in the side of the head with something. But most people made a bad choice, but that eventually led into something where they then had the brain disease take over because their brain is reprogrammed. Right. 
They're no longer able to make choices. So, you know, I have a, I had a message on my, on my uh, website from a mother last week, which is a good example, who was just devastated about her son, who is a local here. He's 32 years old. He's been through an addiction for a long time and finally told the family he wanted help. Well, the mom went to pick him up to take him to the doctor because he had his arm was so infected from shooting up that he, they told him he's going to lose his arm. So he left the doctor with his mom. The next day she went to pick him up. And what did he do? He stiffed her when she came to pick him up to go to the doctor to pay for him to get his arm fixed so he didn't lose his arm and went and got heroin and got high. So that's just a simple single example. But what it is is he now has a brain disease where his brain isn't properly thinking or functioning because it's in survival mode and he's getting what he needs and no longer making cognitive choices that most people would. So, so, so with you, when did it start to escalate? Like how long did it take before it started to escalate? It started escalating pretty quickly within months. You know, you're doing more and more to get that same feeling, right? It's no, it's no, it's no good to go and spend money and resources and time and to get what you need. And then it only making you not feel sick. Cause pretty quickly, especially with opioids here in Utah, the feeling of feeling good lasts for a short period of time without increasing your quantity substantially. So therefore your, your, your body starts to feel sick, deprived. And actually like if you had the flu, a serious case of the flu, that's what it starts to feel like at first when you don't have it. And then it's much more significant than that as you progress the withdrawals. So what used to be a quarter of a pill quickly turned into a full pill to two pills. Yeah, well, a quarter pill. pill of what you're taking, it's kind of like somebody popping 20 Percocet oh. as your first, like, uh, yeah. let's start as here. your introduction. Yep. Most people would vomit. Like, most people, like, because yep. I didn't know that. I didn't really know that Oxycontin was just a more potent. No, it was more potent. I, when I took That's that little insane. quarter, I took that quarter, and as soon as I felt it go down through my chest, I and my body just threw up all over the street. I'm thinking of like saving you, private Ryan. You like, threw up the first time you big, took it. Oh yeah. Before oh, really? it even got through my intestines. Like as soon as my But soon, you liked it? What? Oh yeah. You liked as the soon feeling? as I threw up and I like wiped it off, kinda like, oh that was weird. Cause I was like, what just happened? Did I get poisoned. It's almost like the excess. Like yeah. your body rejected what it didn't need. Yeah, I remember he had a did. bottle of water and he handed it to me. I rinsed my mouth out and I just stood up and the sky was bluer. The mountains That's crazy were made. You I mean, threw up, but after it's what was it still left had the effect enough, on you. I know. That's crazy. And so you go from that to within a few months, and you know, everyone's a little bit different, but it's pretty common, the progression. It all depends on your resources and availability and, you know, what, how to, on how to get more. But it was up to five or six pills a day. Good night. Which was 350 to $500 habit. Jeez. Up to like 10 to 20 pills a day, which ended up at the peak. I was up to like $5,000 a day. Just to get that right to where the point was, I remember one day when I was up to like 10 pills a day being so sick that somehow, you know, I ran across a, a bottle of Percocets that was full. I mean, maybe they had one or two out and just almost like a guy that's been crawling across the desert and can't find water for like three days. He's about to die. I just grabbed it, pulled the top off and just chewed all of them up threw yeah. all of them in my mouth, chewed them up like a handful of Skittles. Just to like, so I could just kind of like start breathing normal again. Just like a little sip of water almost Terrible. to keep yeah. it going. Yeah. At, at what stage did family start to know that something was up? Pretty quick. But again, it's amazing how 
families are, families are taught so easily by the addict how to support them. What does that mean? Well, the addict doesn't, not knowingly does it, but there's guilt, like there's guilt or shame. And there's also like the addict makes them feel guilt or shame, like coming from themselves. Even for the families, like they feel guilty. Oh, poor so-and-so, you know, instantly they start, you know, he's been in this hard relationship or school's being really stressful for him So right they make now. other people feel bad for Feel him. bad for them. Got it. Yeah. And fear. I think when families finally recognize a problem, they're fearful. Like, oh my gosh, what if we do something and then they leave or it gets worse? Or what if we say something and then they get really mad and drink more? There's lots of things. Well, in a sense, we already do it with our kids, right? Yeah. It's kind of like we were talking about the kids going to school late this morning, right? It's like, look, you binge on candy and you stay up late for Halloween. Like, that's your own fault. You're still getting up and going to school. But we do that. Like, I do the same thing. Like, And that's such a small example, but it's what we naturally want to do. Like, oh, you're having a tough time. Like, here. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't let you stay up late, but go ahead. Cause you, you still want your kids to be like, to love you. Right. Yeah. And to be happy with you. And so I think we make those accommodations really early as parents. And so I can only imagine what it would be like as they get In older and they look really sick. Yep. You just want them to feel better. Yeah, you don't like wanna... you, and you know it, it. It's such a fine line. It's such a. Balance. If you rock the boat, they're going to fall out, and it's the fear that they have. The families that are worried about upsetting them, and they go out and use too much and an overdose, or they drink too much and get in an accident, or they just leave and never come back. You know, they've heard that story, and they fear that it'll enter their life that this person will leave and be on the streets and never come home, and it, it happens, which is. That's the main reason I started doing what I'm doing now. But, you know, back to your question, it, it progressed and it got worse. And every addict and alcoholic in the world thinks they can just fix it on their own, right? Like eventually it's all going to come back. Like I just, you know, things just got out of control or got out of hand. And you, want, you tell yourself, I can stop whenever I want to. Yeah, you can. It's just, I don't want to right now. Yeah. Or it's just because, you know, as soon as I get through school, as soon as I get through this, and the reality is, is something hurts inside and I go around to countless families and try to help everyone else in the family understand that whatever their loved one is suffering with, no matter how heavy, you know, sometimes people are dealing with real things like being molested or assaulted or neglected. But there's also people, I was working with a young man recently here locally whose family was so incredible. Everyone's successful, beautiful, I just walked in. I was like, oh my gosh, these are like the perfect humans. And I was working with this young man and going for a walk and listening to him. And I kind of leaned over after hearing a few things and I grabbed him and I looked him in the eyes and I said, do you sometimes just feel like everyone else got the playbook? That playbook in life of how to do it, right? The manual on how to do life and you never got your copy. And his eyes just welted up with tears and he was just staring at me. He's like, it's exactly how I feel. So for him in that instant, it's recognizing that pain he's feeling, whether someone else is like, oh, you need to knock it off. Or dad's like, grow a pair. Or mom thinks that she's going to pray enough that it'll go away. It is real to him. And the second he finds something that makes it go away, he will welcome that back and he will do it again. And there are lots of things out there that make people or help people make that feeling go away. So 
So it, like, when did it start to get to a point where you maybe recognized, all right, this is, this is becoming something. Yeah. And what, just to recap real quick, you were married. Yeah. I was married. Selling insurance. Selling insurance. All during this yeah, deal. I was. And you're having to have a certain amount of success because you were funding your problem. Right. Funding my problem. I had money saved up. I was resourceful and you know, people find ways you have, you associate yourself with other people and there's ways of manipulating things and being the top dog on the chart and getting it for everybody else. And you get yours for free. So did you, so did you turn in, were you dealing as well? Yeah. I mean, I was supplying everybody from people and it was allowing them to get what they needed. And I thought I was doing them a service. Isn't that awesome? Wow. Isn't that awesome? It's helping them out so they weren't sick and then I was getting mine for free or whatever. But yeah, when it hit home for me is when this is the truthful part is everyone else, the bear, like the, the wall started caving in my family, my parents, my siblings I was married at the time and their family and people I was working with everyone else kind of confronting me at different angles. And I was like, Oh man, I can't, you know, my secret was getting harder and harder to hide. And I went to treatment the first time just because I was given an ultimatum by people that love me, like go get help or this is it. It's okay. I kind of went in. I just wasn't sold on it. I was still wanted to protect my precious, you know, <laughs> and came out. And I remember specifically the clinical director telling me like, Hey, if you don't make the changes necessary right now, things are going to get much worse, much quicker. So at, at that time, what were you still Oxycontin? Pain about? pills. Yeah. Is that all you all were doing at that anything, point? Pain pills you could get your hands on. Yep. Okay. Like lots and lots and whatever. So I left treatment, didn't get the help I needed. Didn't put the place, the tools in place. Denial, denial, denial. Do you feel like that you just weren't ready as a person to take those steps? Or yeah. do you feel like there wasn't the structure to maybe help get to it, that point? Looking back, it was just me. I wasn't okay. ready. I mean, I had all the tools and resources around me. I just wasn't bought in because I wasn't like those people. My hell, I just went to rehab for 30 days with people, but I was never like one of them. So as you were in there, you're like, oh, you guys are, you guys are screwed. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. That's where my personal witness of this brain disease comes in. You have to be, to all my fellow addicts, which none of them are listening, you are a bit mentally retarded. <laughs> Yeah. Truthfully, I was because I came out and said, I'm not like any of them. Well, you feel like the I smartest had, person in the room. Still. Oh my gosh. I was, I was Dan Deaton, man. And I had like, I had the most expensive drug habit and came out of there still thinking I wasn't like them. And I was promised that what would happen? Well, sure enough, came out, didn't make changes. People around me saw that I didn't make changes, caught on pretty quick, even though I thought I was manipulating everyone and marriage ended uh, lost the business. And ultimately my family told me that I wasn't welcome around them anymore. So things collapsed quickly. This is when I say I got a case of the efforts. You're just like effort. Like, right. what do I have to live for? Just total apathy. Yeah. Just back dumb. then. Yeah. I wouldn't have used the abbreviation, but, uh, <laughs> it was it. I mean. reckless, <laughs> reckless, reckless using, which was awesome for a minute. Sold the house, Sold everything else I had to my name. I remember walking out of the bank one day with this bag of money and I just went on this spree and I was 
ultimately all the little holes in my life that I was feeling like, you know, anxiety from this depression from that feeling uncertain, uncertain. When your family kind of said that to you, was there something in you that was like, all right, I'm going to prove to you how, like, what, like, what was that like for you? Like when the family, Nothing. Was like, no. I mean, the emotion, it, you don't you, feel it, a probably. normal person would process those feelings, right? Like yeah. that's heavy. Normal person would it'd be kind of an eye awakening, eye opening experience. Well, nothing. Screw them. It fueled my reason to use. Oh, you know what? See, you know, when he does this, everyone thinks I'm the problem. Everyone thinks I have a problem. They all have their own problems. And I just started using it to fuel and without any reason to hide it anymore. Probably felt free for a second. Felt free for a second. It was great. But within just a few weeks, it got, it got ugly. See, I, this is where I think the, the the thing that I keep thinking about is the upbringing part. So not that there's, I don't think the upbringing necessarily has anything to do with the start of the drug addiction, but when you, you know, if you look at your past, right, athlete, successful, good looking guy, great personality, got through school, went on a mission, like you're already, we'll just say top 20% of society as far as intelligence, confidence, you played sports, like that adds a whole level of confidence, yeah. you graduated from college. So, you know, when you start this, you're already in a lot of situations, one of the smarter people in the room, right? You're not, you're not down in the dumps. You're not, you haven't hit rock bottom. So in my opinion, it takes so much longer to hit that bottom when you start an addiction and you're already one of the smartest people in the room, right? It, it just takes, it's such a, your denial. Yeah. And it just takes so much longer for that bottom to hit. Yep. And that's what's so fascinating about what I've heard so far is just that I can I can't totally relate. You know, my issue is only about six to eight months long. Yeah. Um and we can get into that another time, but I've told it before, but it's amazing how shocked I was when my wife finally was just like it's me or that the pills. Yeah. I had no idea she even knew. Yeah, you're like, what? <laughs> I was just like, what are you talking about? She goes, you're an asshole. Like, yeah. I'm done with how you're treating it. I'm like, wait, what? I thought I'd been happy <laughs> and great. And, you know, I was taking six, maybe 10 Percocet a day, like after six, seven months. Yeah. You know, I never went past just what I could get in a prescription, mm-hmm. but I was getting like the 120 bottles, you know, oh, the yeah. big old, but luckily I had been through some things earlier in life that made me like l- the thought of losing my family because of past history with, with my family, that incentive was greater. Yep. Like I had kind of already been at the bottom in other situations. You had seen it. And so... I did. I dumped them in the toilet right yep. there in front of her. And it was a, I mean, seven or eight really bad days curled up in a ball, Time but 30 to 40 days until I felt normal again. Yep. But if, had I not experienced what I did before that, I would have been right with you. Yep. Like I, I would have just been like, look, I own a restaurant. Like 
I'm a pretty sharp guy. I'm successful. I got a beautiful family, nice house. Like, mm-hmm. One of so, my favorite quotes is, until the pain of same is greater than the pain of change, nothing will change. Yep, 100%. And that's exactly right. Like I had something to compare it to. Like I could see like awesome. when she said like it's me or this bottle, I immediately had something to draw from and that, that was, was more way painful. worse yep. than keeping the bottle. Well, see, you touched on a point that is critical and it's because she called you out. Right. She's a good woman. That's why you married her. She yep. knows you. She called you out and it was a shock. It was a surprise. I couldn't believe she knew. Yeah. And that happens all the time, which goes to show how distorted people's thinking gets. Did you ever have a family like with intervention? Did everyone take that stronghold with you? There was never, you know, my sobriety dates May 1st, 2007. It's been 12 and a half years. It's amazing. So even to back up to that point, it was still, I mean, back then there was a dozen rehabs in Utah, which is way more than most of the country. There's now over 50. Actually, I think we're getting closer to 60. So resources become availability is becoming more families are getting more and more aware and educated on it. But even back then to answer your question is no, they, they confronted me in different ways, just the best they knew how and everyone kind of on their own level. And they just didn't have the tools. They didn't have the tools. We didn't know. They didn't have the balls. Let me just say it like it is because in our society, in our culture, in our community, I go out and speak to people and help them understand the reason, right? Let me share with you why I started this business. And it wasn't as much for profit because there's other things that make you more money. It's that there are 22, if you look on different sites, anywhere, an average is 22 million people with known alcohol and drug disorders. These aren't people who drink normally on occasion. Um, These are people with actual their lives are unmanageable and they are addicted to drugs or alcohol. That's crazy. That's known people. Right. That's, there's so many more that they don't know because Way of the people living in secrets, right? There's a large number. And if you look on us government sites, you'll see anything around 10 to 12%, sorry, eight to 10% of people getting help, the proper treatment. And in Utah, it's more like 10 to 12, but the reality is you're right at about 10% of people with known substance abuse disorders are getting treatment. Well, around the world, there's several factors. There's economics, there's uh, transportation, availability. But here in our sweet town, our (laughs) state that has ample amounts of resources, the issues aren't typically the same. You're still only at 10%, 10 to 12. You're 10%. Okay, people have access to money and resources. If they don't themselves, there's usually organizations or their next door neighbor, family members. There's more than enough facilities. I could list 14 of them within a five mile radius of here, maybe 10 mile radius. There are lots of people, resources, and tools, but the issue is the secrets here in our community are deeper and more rooted than most parts in the country that I've heard. The predominant faith here, which I am a member of, and ultimately save my life is based upon something I believe is real and true, but there's a culture. There's a culture that surrounds it that I don't know why, but I just want to go up to the microphone in church and be like drugs because it scares people to hear the word and hear me out. If anyone heard that and was offended, I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to say that. Second of all is 
We're scared to talk about things that are hard. Well, we're so worried about what everybody else thinks too. We're scared of having hard conversations. It's scary. It's It's 100% Confrontation is scary. It's scary to have hard conversations, whether it's addiction. Robin talked about it with talking about self-defense and sexual abuse and well, all that kind feeling of stuff. shame for being raped like she, she, she told, she told the guy sorry because, yeah she told During, him I, sorry. She says sorry it was amazing like just feel like she felt ashamed that like her body wasn't clean anymore i'm like what and that's that's scary I, I i won't use any examples because of confidentiality but i'll tell you on multiple occasions here all the work that i'm doing is here I've decided to take a different approach than most people who do this line of work because I found it be an anthill of a problem here just in our state. But the people that I've ran across, a vast majority of them have actually even expressed or told on themselves to their family, their parents, their loved one is a kind of a cry for help. But even in those cases, they turn a cheek. Oh, you know, it's okay, Johnny. Like, you know, it'll get better. We're really sorry. We're rooting for you. And my big belief is dad's lectures in the office and mom's prayers will never make this go away. Well, and they don't want the shame of saying they have a kid that's on drugs. They don't. Like they actually care. And there I, are people that actually care about like, oh, I don't want people to find out I've got a kid in rehab. No, you know what? That's so true. They yep. don't. And I actually think it's, it goes beyond that. They don't want their neighbors to know. They don't want everyone at church to know or people in their little book groups, quilt groups, people at the gym, whatever. But I think they don't want to recognize it themselves. Yeah. Because it's almost like you have to, in their mind, it's admitting failure. Failure as a parent. As a parent. Who wants to admit that I failed my child? As no a one. parent, you want everything for your kid. Yep. And the second something is doesn't go right, what do we all do? I failed my kid. Yep. I don't want to admit to that. Yep. You know? So more than culture, it it's a I think the love you have for your kids, you just don't want to admit like, gosh, dang it. I failed them. Yeah. My nine year old, he, he's my man. Like he is, he's the most, he's the funniest kid. His, his dream is to be like the wor- most world famous YouTuber one day, but he, it is, <laughs> it's different generation, but he comes up to me the other day and he's like, he's like, dad, you know, if two guys are kissing, they're gay. Right. So what does that mean? And I was like, I stat, I stop. He's nine. My other kids are seven and four. I haven't crossed this road yet. Right. Like, what's the right way to have a conversation? He then follows up. He's like, well, you and mom made me and our, you know, the other kids. So I think someone at school told me how you do that. But how do these guys do that? And I was like, I mean, it went to another level. (laughs) So I'm put on the spot. And there's a point to this. I sat him down and I gave him enough answers to help him understand his first question. Because he brought a question up to me a few weeks before that, and I didn't answer the question. I heard him on the couch a little while later while my wife was putting our youngest to sleep, press the phone on my button. Hey, Siri, what does this mean? (laughs) Legitimately. (laughs) And he got the answer he wanted. And I, I knew right then and there that what I was doing was for a purpose and it was for a reason because he needed answers to a question he had. Now, are there appropriate ways and times to answer those? Yes. But when we flash forward to these, these young adults all around us that are suffering in life that are doing things, 
no one wants to talk about it in their family. Everyone's ashamed of it. Everyone, it's this dirty laundry that no one wants to smell. And they just hope it sits in the bottom of the laundry chute forever and goes away, but it won't. So, you know, backing up to what happened, well, my life fell apart. Um, I was in almost, I say, you know, I was a functioning addict for years. And eventually when things got cut off and the people I loved turned their back and drew a barrier, drew a line in the sand, it took a matter of weeks before things got to that point. To where you became professional. Yeah. yeah. And I became broken and on more than one occasion was found dead. I had a a friend have to inject me with cocaine once, which he thought because he saw in a movie would stimulate me back to life. It, it did thankfully. Um, Hold on. So heroin, you were like, you OD'd on an opiate. Yeah. So I I got to the point where I was, yes, shooting up heroin and cocaine. Right. And (laughs) when I got clean, my sponsor, who is a graduate for BYU, now works for NASA, my sponsor who kind of helped me through. Amazing. He just said, listen, the whole time you were doing Oxycontins at that level is just because you're a pussy. (laughs) That's what he said. He's like, you're wasting way too much money. And you're going about it all the wrong way. He's like, everyone yep. looks at heroin addicts as like these dirty drug addicts, heroin. That word alone just sounds so terrible. He's like, actually, it's more efficient, better cost effective and easier to way get. Way cheaper. Way cheaper. It's just, he's like, you were just a little wuss bag before. And I was like, well, you know, touche. So there is some <laughs> That's why you work that. for NASA. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I don't. selling insurance. And I don't. But that was the truth of it. So... It, it got bad. I was homeless. I, I went from being in a successful family, beautiful childhood to living out of my car. Um, Did you have any contact with family at no, that point? I was completely gone. I didn't know what day it was, what, what hour of the day it was. I was, so we got to the end and uh, I have a video on my website about this that portrays it really well. I had some people help me make this, but uh, a friend of mine decided we were out of money. We'd pawned everything, sold everything, stolen everything we could ever get our hands on. Our grand idea was to call the drug dealers and we were going to go meet them. And when we found them, cause we always used to just meet on random streets and random neighborhoods out on the West side, we would just take them over and like physically take from them what they had. We were going to assault them and rob them. Right. Well, driving around, I was laid back. I had the passenger seat laid back. He's driving my car. I was so sick, dope sick. I had my feet up on the dash. Well, he's flying through these neighborhoods, chasing this guy, hits a parked car, I don't know, going 30 or 40 miles an hour. And it projected me through the windshield, off the hood, into the front of the car. And I had busted both of my ankles. I'm laying there on the ground. And we didn't get what we were trying to get. But we also realized that there was paraphernalia and all sorts of stuff in my car. It wasn't registered. We were, you know, he was intoxicated. So he carried me back in the car and, uh, a policeman showed up. Here's the beauty of it. We talked our way out of it. We talked our way out of it. We had become masters at lying and deceiving people. So he drove me home. Well, he drove me back to where he was staying without a windshield on the car. And the both cops make, let you go? Yeah. The story we came up with, I don't know if it was something about someone's funeral and a grandma or something, but 
I don't remember it, but we talked ourselves out of it. So we came home and he carried me into the basement. Well, he was on drugs and just didn't want to do paperwork. Probably. Yeah. But he carried me into the basement of this place he was staying and it was an abandoned basement. And um, I laid there and prepared myself to die. I would weigh barely over 100 pounds. I hadn't eaten in I don't know how many days. Probably had gone several days more than you're allotted without water. All my veins in my body had turned black. And I was at the point. I, I was too big of a pansy to take my own life but I was to the point where I just wanted it to go away. So I laid there and we mustered up. How many times did you thought about it? You know, at that level once, I mean, I thought about it. I thought, well, you know, if I take this or if I inject this, like if it ends it, oh, well, cause it was so, like, you know, the quantities were so high that it could at any time. Well, we scrounged up something. I don't remember how we did it. Who knows? We probably were packaging up packets of top ramen and whatever we could find, but he went out to get, to get us a hit and I was laying on this basement floor, um, waiting for him to get back, which felt like an eternity. And there was a few moments where it's a very personal thing, but I had these brief little instances where I could feel a separation of my physical body and my spirit, where I was teetering back and forth in this weird state, knowing that it was, I, my life was right at the end. And I felt myself dying well, I was waiting for him to come back and the door opened to this basement and you know, it was dark in there. And so when this door opened, I could see the light come in and I, I was laying on the ground drool coming out. I was just laying at the ground, looking up at the light from this door opening and in walked my dad and my brother. My dad had had a dream the previous night. He was speaking at my funeral and was in a panic. He contacted my brother and my brother had expressed how concerned he was too. So they went looking for him all day and ran into my friend while he was out trying to get us a fix and my brother convinced him to tell him where I was at well when they walked in I was so broken that my dad leaned down with the most calm presence ever and said you're going to die if you want some help you have to want it and we will help you I was so broken and I felt like the biggest pile of garbage imaginable. I just closed my eyes, shut my mouth and sat there and he walked away. He knew my answer was no. And my brother leaned over and he's like, what's wrong with you? Like, why you're going to die? Look at you. He walked away and with, with my dad and as the door shut, I remember watching the light fade. And there was just this moment where somehow I mustered up enough and I yelled for help. I said, please help, please. And I guess at that moment I decided I wanted to live. And so my brother came back and he's my younger brother and he scooped me up like you would your six-year-old. He just picked me up off the ground in his arms and carried me out of the house because I was so frail. And my journey to where I am today started at that moment. And that was almost 13 years ago. And the process from getting from that position in my life to where I'm at now required a lot of help. And, uh, I finally have the chance to help other people and it's just decided that it's time to do it. And I, I think a lot of people try to go about it their own way. You know, when it comes to this mental illness that people get, they all feel like they have the answer. Your milkman does your neighbor, your uncle, everybody has a different idea, right? <laughs> but there's only one way to do it and it's to confront it and it's to do the hard things. So that's what I'm trying to do is help families 
do those hard things and make those hard choices, not because I'm some seasoned clinical physician who studied this. I quite frankly don't care how many letters someone has after their name. I don't care how many books they've read on it. To know what it's like to lay on that cold ass floor and feel your spirit leaving your body, to turn help away from your dad when you can see yourself dying, that's something I've been through and I know what it feels like. So through my experience, I help families to overcome those obstacles that are in front of them. A lot of times it's just getting mom and dad on the same page because dad's pissed off. Mom's the enabler. Siblings are all resentful because the addict gets all the attention. They're all living their lives, getting good grades, doing what they're supposed to, but the person suffering has the spotlight and all the attention. I get everybody on the same page to make those hard choices, to quit enabling, to stop doing the things they're fearful of, to get this person help. Because is there a chance that they're not going to accept? Oh, yeah. And is there a chance that they're going to go die? 100%. I've had someone die in my arms while giving them CPR. I've had two of my best friends. One who used to be a quarterback for the predominant college here. <laughs> Hold on. Die. Someone died in your arms when you were no longer using? No, I wasn't using. Okay. I just saw people die Got it. all around. Two people I grew up with, both came from successful families, were very predominant families here in the state, lost their loved ones to this. So we all know it. If you go and look at statistics, like people are dying at an alarming rate from suicide and overdose. Utah has one of the highest overdose rates in the country. Now, granted, it's per capita, um, and there's other factors into that, but the reality is more people die from drug overdose than car accidents and gun accidents combined. So if you look at society and see that this, the leading cause of accidental death you know, between ages of 18 and 45 right now is suicide, so much of it is crossover between drugs and alcohol addiction and, and other things, obviously, but... There's just a lot of people out there suffering that need help. And they're not just going to wake up one day and be like, oh my gosh, my life got unmanageable. I, could someone help me? I need help. Mom, mom, I need help. Mom, I need some help, please. It won't happen. So why was this time different? You've had hard times before. Yeah. You had hit rock bottom. You'd been to rehab multiple times. Why was this time any different? You can bleep it out, but rock bottom is a bunch of, okay. See, I'm a refined man now. Rock bottom <laughs> is a bunch of BS. Okay. Because there is always a door deeper. Yep. Death is the door. And there's a lot of people that end up in treatment because it was court ordered. A lot of people end up in treatment because it's an ultimatum from families. But listen, like you so gracefully shared, something happened. You thought that this was no one understood. Your wife had the balls to stand up and intervene and say, this isn't right. It's either me or the, these pills. So families need the courage to do that. And they go about it the wrong way. I, this, Why? It didn't get to this point overnight. And it's not going to go away overnight. But the problem is there's this four-letter word that we all have inside of our homes. And it's the most powerful thing. It's called love. So by it, we're blinded. By it, by, we, we blind ourselves. We, we actually can distort our thoughts to think that it's not happening. Recently, I was working with a family whose dad said, you know, it, our son is not an alcoholic. He's not like those people that go to rehab. So that's, this is kind of ridiculous. We don't need this. Well, we had just done an assessment for an hour previous to that. And I said, in the last three weeks, you have driven him to the ER twice for being in a medically induced coma for drinking himself to the brink of death. Your son's not an alcoholic. Oh my 
God. who the hell is? I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So that powerful thing called love causes us to really look at things the way they are. There's a lot of reasons though. We don't know where to go, how to go. We don't know how to get there. We don't know what it's, what's in store for us. Why would anyone be a professional on drug recovery or alcohol recovery? Why? You shouldn't, but there's plenty of resources out there. So I think people are afraid to make a call. So if they go to my website or look me up on, on Instagram or something, they'll see, I just put it out there. I just, it's like showing someone the ugliest picture of you and description of your life. I'm like, here it is. There's a couple of my mug shots. That's what I look like strung out on heroin. You have nothing to hide. There's nothing you're going to tell me. It's going to surprise me. Sometimes it gives them the courage to just start talking. How hard was your rehab process? Very hard. How long did it take before you felt like you, and I don't know, I mean, everyone has their battles. I mean, how long before you felt like you were, you were doing good? A year. Okay. A year. I mean, I had that facade after a few weeks where I wasn't sick, dope sick, where I felt okay. And I felt, it felt better than it should have just because the opposite was so terrible. Yeah. I was so sick, but mine was crazy. I mean, in a 10 second nutshell, I, I went to detox. I was there for 21 days, ripped all my hands off, scratching the wall. Cause I was in so much pain, throwing up, shivering, crapping myself. It was ridiculous. Then I went to treatment for 90 days after which I went to sober living after which I went to court for some possession charges I had. And this is a whole nother subject. I'm going to get started. I had like $20 worth of drugs found on me that accumulated into three felony possessions. So I got sentenced to a year in jail. Um, I went there for several months and then I got put on. You went to jail? Yeah. It was awesome. During your rehab process, you went to jail? After, yeah. After I went to rehab to save my own life. Are you being sarcastic when you say awesome or are you saying it was good for you awesome? (laughs) It took 13 years to say it was awesome, but I was pissed. It was a like huge you're doing all these back. good things. You're doing like you're, yeah. you're I doing surrendered. everything right. I surrendered. I asked for help. I went and got clean, not because it was ordered by a judge, because I did it. But I had to go and do it. And I had a good friend, childhood friend, visit me in jail. He said, you know what? You are going to make right with God. But this will be your chance to make right with society. He's like, you did several things. Several times you had done things where you should have been in trouble. Even though this time it wasn't what it looked like. There were several times where you were in trouble and this will help solidify you. Well, just think what you could have done with that car that day. Oh, hurt like how somebody. many people could you have killed yeah. that day? Yeah. Don't even get me in, right? started with how many people drive cars a day in, in our country. Oh, well, it, it's yeah. unbelievable. So that, that happened. Were um, you, was there ever when you're in jail and you're pissed at the world where there was like a relapse almost? Like, did you get close to anything? Might have been a good place for you to be. It, it, it was. Yeah. So looking back now, I see the hands of God in my life and that when I finally got out of my own way and I trusted in his mercy, it didn't appear at the time. It took a long time, over a decade to see what you just mentioned. Yeah. It was the safest place to be. But I got to pay the price for things I did wrong. I got to feel it. And I got to understand what it's like to be in one of those jumpsuits and to be in a cage. Because if none of you have ever been into a pod in a county jail, it's an enormous cinder block structure that's separated from the world. There's no light. There's no nothing. You don't know what time of day it is. And there's a wall and there's like four stories and you're just caged up and it's loud and it smells and it's terrible and it's cold. But 
I got to feel that and have that experience because later on in life, when your brain starts to think, Oh, you know, it wasn't that bad or I can't, you know, that helps solidify how bad it was. We work on incentive. Yeah. Right. It, it's like my little story, right? I, I saw 20 years of what I had gone through. Yeah. I was like, do I want to do that now to my own family or stop taking the pills? Yep. And so in a sense that, seven months was a huge blessing, not only because it kept you from relapsing and safe, but now you, like you said, like, motivation. It, yeah, you've got the incentive, like this is better than that. Yeah. Don't take it. It is an Don't image that you will, you can't forget. Right. And after that, I got out on this ankle monitor program. So I was like part of the chain gang. If you've ever been driving on the freeway <laughs> and you see those homeboys stand outside the road. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my pretty little face was out there just waving at traffic. <laughs> yep. Get back to work. So I would go do that, and I had to go through a whole other program through the state. It, it was a two-year process. It was hard. But through all of that, I got to remember and regain full awareness and understanding of who I was, what I was here doing on this earth, what my purpose was, and it gave me the tools. It ingrained them. It wasn't a quick fix. I didn't get to rub a magical oil on my forehead or take a medication that cured it overnight. I did what it took to lay down the foundation and, and, and ultimately change the trajectory of my life. And, you Which know, it's crazy because fast forward to today, yeah, you have a beautiful family, yeah, you know, doing great things. And so it's amazing yeah. to, to contrast where you were to where you yep. are. It's incredible. And before it all happened, I had that life that everyone looks at and sees as being perfect. But I had an emptiness inside, which was, I hadn't really discovered who I was right now. I went to hell and back. And if you ever get a chance to see my video, which if any of you are out there, I wish you would and share with someone that, you know, suffering, we'll post it and we'll link it. So. Please. Yeah. It's, I actually now have a life more beautiful than I ever dreamed of as, as a young man. And it's not based upon an image I'm putting out there for others to see. It's because it's real. Like I have children that I never dreamed of having. I have a spouse that's more the, of an incredible person than I ever dreamed of finding. But I get to look in the mirror and see me who for who I am. It's not who I hope to be or who I, who I think I need to be like. I think a lot of people have a hard time just looking in the mirror and just being like, hey. This is me. This is me. I see you. I love you. And when did you get to that point? Cause I'm sure after the fact you carried shame with you for a long yeah. time on what you had gone through. When did you get to the point that you loved that person that you were looking at? Probably about five years ago, somewhere in that time frame. It took a few years. It's little steps you get, you know, you pat yourself on the back and you kind of feel a little proud of what you've done. And then you kind of have like this, you know, add a boy moment and you start looking at your life from a positive perspective. But when I started surrounding myself with people I loved and cared about and the relationships were real, they had substance and I was doing what I was supposed to do for a sustained period of time. Then my faith and my belief helped me overcome the last lingering strings of shame and guilt to set me free and to allow me to just feel pure joy and pure happiness so I had to go to hell and back to find that, but you know, 
I always say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as corny as that is, but I'm grateful for the experiences I had. And now I'm just to this point where I get to use those as a tool to help other people. So, Do you think if the old you met the current you, you could have influenced the old you not to go down that path? Or do you think you were going to go down it? Because everyone has their journey, right? Yep. Now your journey was brutal, Yep. but look where you've come from it. Yep. Do you think there was anything that could have prevented it, shortened it? Yeah. Or do you think it was yours to have? So you now have the experience you have to be able to go and touch people. Well, that's a good question. Um, to come up with that on the fly. It's really insightful of you. And the answer is most definitely I could have shortened that period. I think we all have a gift that we've all been giving, regardless of what you believe in. It's your agency. You get to choose every day how you feel, what you're going to do. And it's a beautiful gift, but I definitely would have been able to do things that would have prevented it getting to the point it ever got to. And it sure would have been nice to get to a point where someone like my wife loved me enough to say it's either me or this, and it would have stopped because I joke and laugh about how bad it got at times, but it was, that's a darkness and a pain. I hope very few people ever have to witness or experience or even hear of. So most definitely, I don't know if it would have been the old me that I could have got through to, but I would have got through to my family because without them, it would have never gone that long without them. It would have hit some sort of head much for much earlier and caused a reaction, either something to happen or it to get worse, but it would have prolonged the inevitable. It wouldn't, have, you know, it would have just stopped the insanity is what I call this addiction. We all know it's doing the same thing over expecting a different result. There's no way in hell magically one day you're going to wake up and it's going to go away. It's not. So I would have helped those around me get to that point that with love and support, they can draw a line in the sand so that something happens where it either causes it to get worse quicker and we come to a head or someone has a moment where they wake up because not everybody has to hit that bottom. Not everybody has to get to that point. There are a lot of people who are still early enough in their addiction that they see, oh my gosh, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose this relationship and that will steer them away. Everybody's journey is different. I like that you said there's no rock bottom. I've never thought like that. I it's ridiculous. I, it's, it's, that's a powerful statement. Uh, it really when is. you really like, think about it, it's a I, powerful statement. Right. I've always said, like, this was my bottom. But I've kind of rewired it now after listening to you because I don't know if I'm going to be able to put this into words. But in my mind, it makes sense. It is basically an incentive-based thing. It's where you get to a point where... Losing this is worse than staying where you're at. And I think it can be shortened. You know, there, if you have that reason yeah. to fight or to overcome it, then that's, for lack of a better term, your current bottom. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, I got to stop. Dump them in the toilet, curl up in a ball. This is not worse than losing this. People love me. I need to be here for them. That is a better drug than that. Yeah, and you didn't make that decision on your own. No. You were incentivized right. 
and persuaded, so to speak, by someone who loves you. You're forced. Someone to just held it. up a big sign and yep. said, "It's like, okay, you're at the fork. Yep. Like yep. you can go this way or this way." Yep. And it's just like all I needed to know was that, you know, like you said, she had the balls to say, "Yep, listen, it's this or that." And so, I think that is a really powerful thing because. It, and and it kind of brings me to another question, and I think it might be smart, like just a little awareness thing now, you know, before we finish up. Yeah. Hopefully there's people listening to this that it's touching and affecting, and maybe maybe they're realizing I've got somebody in my life that might be that's struggling with this. What's, whether it's a spouse, a parent, yep. what is the first step to approaching, you know, if there's somebody listening right now that knows they've got a, a, a sibling or a spouse or a kid that's well, first of all, I love drugs. you for all that you just said because this is no longer about your third aunt that lives in a foreign land or right. my uncle that when I looked up and doing my ancestry work, my uncle, my no great uncle was a drug. It's worse it. than cancer. It's my spouse it's my right. children it's my niece my nephew my what, mom my yeah. dad it, it's right inside your home if it's not you but what you said is what do you tell them what do you do you make a plan and so what i do is i go and help families sit down and we assess the situation of how bad it is well if you're going to draw a line in the sand and say enough's enough and you're going to confront them about it don't just do it on a whim don't just right do Holy it cow. because you're pissed so i sit down and them and i say okay here's what we're going to do we're not conceiving behind your loved one's back, but we, we meet together without them present. We come up with a plan based upon economics, their insurance benefit. I inform them of all the places and what they do. I say, here's a few places where it could suit you well, your family and your loved one, for whatever reason, there's a million of them. We get a plan in place of where we're going to go, how we're going to get there, what kind of incentives we're going to offer them by them following and complying with this, but what we're going to ask in return, how much is too much? How much is too little? If there's family members that don't agree with the process, everyone has to be on the same page. They can't fill any holes in this attempt. And so we get everyone to compile a plan and then we talk to them and it doesn't have to be sitting in this crazy room where we're setting them up at a hotel and we're reading letters and they run <laughs> off. Like you say, I have yet to actually do that. What it is is the family comes together individually or whatever. And we talk to him. We have a real conversation. This is how it's going to be. We will do anything in our power to help. And this is what we're going to offer. If you can't, then these are, you know, you have consequences set up, but it's doing it together in a unified plan. Well, how many people sit down and know exactly what that's like and what that entails? Nothing. Right. So I come in and for small consulting fee, I help families make sense of this more or less. I help them understand what that person is actually feeling like. And reminding them of universal facts. Empathy. Empathy. So there's so, oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to uncover on that. We can keep going for so long. I'm going to try not to. <laughs> so two things, what you're talking about is something that I've always done and I'm just realizing the crossover. But when you talk about having a plan, you have to have your strategy in place, right? Yeah. You have to be intentional about what you're going to do. You can't just one day think, oh, I'm going to go talk to them. Well, why? What are you going to say? What's the outcome? Right. And then stage the step, second step is you have to have a structure as part of your plan to help them. And the quote I heard once that stuck with me is you have to have a structure sufficient to the resistance. Wow. Amen. Meaning what you're going to do 
depending where that person is at or how hard it's going to be, you better have a structure in place sufficient to the resistance you're going to get. Because if you don't, it's going to break and it's going to fail. Yep. And so you have to have that in place. And with a normal person, let yes. alone an addict. And love yep. and prayers yep. and say, hoping. Build, build that structure four times or yep. maybe 10 times bigger than you expect. Yeah. But how many addict, people right? go in thinking that, that I have to have this in place? Well, yeah. and, and I think to your point, the other side of that is the empathy side. Like, yep. I think I think it's so important. So many people have not, especially with the older generation, right? Yep. They have not gone through or can empathize with what the brain disease like what's going on like no it's always nothing that this kid or brother or whoever has done to you was because they don't love you or on purpose or like let me help you understand their brain what's happening so you can fall back in love with this son brother sister mom dad and and help from a place of Firm, structured, yes, but love, right? Well, that's the key. It doesn't work without that, right? Right. I mean, your dad walking in on you on the ground, dying, but he was still there for you. Yep. Your brother. Yep. They're still there for you. I can't even imagine what they had gone through. I can't imagine as a parent knowing my child is going through that, still showing up. Yep. Right? How about that dream? Like, if that's not God's hand, yeah. I mean, that. I hope you look back at that and realize how special you are. Yeah, like that, that's that's a pretty. Which is known. You there is a purpose for you still being here, right? Yeah. The last thing I want to say is, when that point happens, when that fork in the road comes, it does not just because you dare to say something, it does not mean the outcome is going to be good. <laughs> no, no. And it and when 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 it gets worse, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. The love still has to be there, right? But yeah. I think it's important you still do it and you love without expectation. Yeah. Right? You do it if they if they do choose the other road, that you are still there. You there is still that love and the empathy, but knowing that it is it's a possibility. Yeah, I'll, I want to share with you guys this link. It was on the Today Show. They just had a story about a mother who lost her son, beautiful boy, lost her son to a heroin overdose. And that was the story is that she decided during her addiction, she was just going to love him no matter what. But love is never enough. Love will never be the cure. But I also know a mother who lost her son. And every day she wakes up. The coulda, shoulda, woulda is make people sick in life, right? Yeah. But every day she wakes up and knows that she turned her cheek to it instead of doing something. So yes, you're going to draw a line and Regret someone's going to run into that wall and it may go the way you want. It may go, it may blow up in your face. But you do it again. But, but you do it again. And then you do it again. And eventually one day they're going to look back and be like, as I did with my parents to look them in the eye and be like, I always knew you loved me, but when you had the ability to stand up and do what you did and tell me that I wasn't welcome around the home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, that's when I knew that you were doing the hardest thing that love ever asked you to do. So it's true. It's not always going to go the way you want, but at least you're doing something. But you got to do it again yeah, and again. Do something. And again, right? The last thing I want to say, sorry, I'm kind of going, taking over here. This is true, 
to everything. This is true to drugs, to alcohol, but it's also true to any type of addiction. I think all of us suffer from some form oh, yeah. of addiction. Some people are addicted to working out. Yep. Some people are addicted to... That's my problem. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. You know, but what I'm saying is like... Sorry, I had to light it up for a second. Yeah. Everyone is battling <laughs> something internally, right? And so everyone should be able to walk out, stop listening to this, and there should be some kind of action for everyone. everyone. These principles apply. The you action know what I mean? is simple. Go it's, to it's not like, oh, I have a son who's addicted to drugs. No, now that's real. Yeah. But there might they might be addicted and struggling with something else. Yeah. And we have to be able to have these the same strategy structure you're talking about, yep. right? And not all of them need to be ones you go talk to your religious leader about, your bishop, your Correct. Oh, there are those, goodness. right? There are those, but... It's time to start having that conversation. Sorry. I have been trying so hard to do what you just said in my life. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to help other people with this, I have got to be living proof of this in all aspects. I always think that I know what people are thinking. And sometimes it's it's a terrible thing. I, everywhere I go, I think oh, I know what they're thinking or how they're thinking about me or what they're... <laughs> Smartest so guy in the room. I've been telling my wife so that I don't have a secret. I've been telling her because sometimes it has negative consequences. Sometimes it affects me, affects my morale, kind of makes me depressed or insecure. I tell the person I love the most and I just simply tell myself. It's, it's a simple little thing. I'm very close with a guy who just went to, through a divorce and you want to hear a real quick story. It's 10 seconds. Someone I care and love about is going through a divorce and he calls and tells me and tells his father, I've been drinking for the last week. I walked into a store and bought, he didn't even know what to buy. This is someone, if anyone in, the wor- in this world knows who Nephi is, that was my brother. And he tells on himself. And I thought, wow, how powerful is that? That he just told his secret and what did it do? Stopped it before it Stopped. came a problem. That secret never gained momentum. And would he have done that without Satan you? Satan was like, damn it. Imagine what could have happened if out of that. Yep. So. Well, and that's the last thing I'm going to say is I think that's what is so amazing about, you know, I heard this weird analogy that I always use about like naval ships. I don't know why I went there. <laughs> like, but listen, hear me out. I don't know why I chose naval ships when I first started thinking about this, but it's your addiction to the gym. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I look at people as if they're boats or ships, right. And, and the people that have gone through what you went through, right. I kind of look at like God's battleship, right. They are, there are people that have lived these perfect lives, right. And they just, they just go along and they do their thing and they're great too. And they contribute, but to me, they're rowboats, right. They can't help anybody. They can't defend anybody. They're just kind of there. And to me, the people that have gone down these roads and have really struggled and come out of it, those are the ones that are like, I'm putting a gun up here and a force field here, and this thing is going to be a floating just giant and can help millions of people. And to me, people that have gone through what you've gone through are our battleships. They are protectors. They are the ones that can pull us, pull us out and help us. And you have a mountain in front of you. You know, one of the 
worst things we're dealing with right now. It's so funny. We hear about guns and we hear about all these other things. Drugs. Prescription pills. Are by far and away what we should be focusing on right now as a society with laws and with change and with resources. Yeah, drugs. And the word people hear drugs, it's like, ah! Like, right. There are so many drugs in your children's school that look like candy. Oh. Drugs that you haven't heard of that aren't, a, a na- that don't have a name that people are used to hearing. But there's also alcohol. Marijuana has become something that people just look at as like drinking Coca-Cola or something. It's so accepted. Right. But all of these ways of numbing. And I, I heard someone once say, that, you know, that this is could very easily be classified as the sins of our generation. But what it all comes down to is something hurts inside. So much that people use drugs or they end up taking their own life. Well, you just said it. They want to numb it. Because it just needs to be talked about. They just need to have the courage somehow to talk about it. And it's okay because a lot of them don't. But before they ever get to laying on that cold basement floor in the state I was in, there's a lot of things and a lot of chances, a lot of things we can try to do way before it ever gets to that point. All right. Walking out of here, what is the one thing you want someone to walk away from? Is it that right there? What, that. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your message? You get a billboard, the Tim Ferriss question, yeah. right? You get a billboard that millions of people are going to see. What are you putting on Mine's your billboard? Mine's go to therapy. <laughs> right? I mean, okay, no, that's great. I, I, I don't know. I, I'd love to ask your opinion about that. Like, there, I, I, There's a beautiful, powerful thing that's been around from the beginning of time, which is AA, right? And they have right. these rooms. There's, there's therapeutic rooms. So take the stigma out and imagine Googling where's a local AA meeting and wherever you're sitting or standing at this point in your life, you'll see dozens around you in your neighborhood, places you never imagine. But all it is is places where people that are feeling the same thing go and talk to each other. But if I had a billboard to tell people, stop the insanity. Stop expecting that it's going to magically go away and reach out and ask for help. No one ever expected you at this point in your life to have the knowledge and experience and know-how on how to approach drug addiction or alcoholism with your child. So use the resources out there, ask somebody for help, and find your way to a place where they can get proper treatment. For There's, both the person suffering as and well. And the family. And the family. the family. Both people. Yeah. The addict, if you look in any family, unless they've only been using for a few days, the addict has become the focal point of the family and the family is now in disarray. Not one aspect of the family is functioning properly because everyone's holding on for dear life. So there's a way to stop it, but continuing to pray that it'll go away will never be the answer. It's never going to work itself out. Nope. Yeah, you can't bury your head in the sand. And nope. I think that's the whole... You, you know, pray for me, the process. For sure. Right. To me, it's like, how do you get ahead of even that? Like, if you're, if there's pain, that's one thing that I think is a huge stigma in Utah is therapy. Like, it sounds so bad. Like, sitting down oh. and paying someone to talk to someone. I'm like, why is that so bad? Like, how many business leaders use life coaches, right? Every successful one. Every successful one. And it's like, if you feel like when you're at your brother, like when you're at the liquor store, right? Like, at what point can we get to where it's like, I feel pain, what pill, what bottle, what can I do to numb it? At what point do we go like, I got to just call a therapist? Who can I talk to? 
Who can I talk to? to or feel I'm going to call my brother. Like yes. it's or I'm gonna, well, yeah. and even not your brother. Like if you don't feel safe, you know, and talking to your we're family, doing something wrong. Yes, yes, yes. But I also feel like I don't think it's a horrible thing to have a bridge to that, like a resource to go to. Right? Like every bishop has that list. Like if you want to go talk to somebody, and you're feeling pain in some area of your life. Here you go. Here's a list of some people that you can call. Yep. Go sit down and talk with them before you like latch onto a bottle or take a drug. Yeah. You know what I mean? And because if, because like you said, there are some families that people are just not going to feel safe in talking to, your, to their families because no. they are the bury their head in the sand, nothing is wrong type of people and won't know how to respond. No. So how can we help them yeah. get to a counselor yeah. or a therapist? We create environments where you're not shamed. And there's so many aspects, right? We all hear social media does it, this, per, you know, putting on this perfect life and everyone looks their best. Sure, that factors into it. Sure, being members of the predominant faith here in this state adds to it because the, it's a bubble, man. the culture is everyone looks a certain way, but no one is. I tell all these young adults I'm working with, listen, stop worrying about going to church. Everyone in there is busted up too. But I was like, <laughs> it's true. It, it is true. Any leader said a church is for the sick. But it no is. No matter what church it is, it's That's for the sick. It is for the sick. sick. There's no reason. It's not a showroom. No. It's not a showroom. But this pressure to be and look a certain way is unbearable. So if everyone learns to start creating a culture inside your home, are we going to celebrate people using drugs in our home? No. But it is a comfortable environment where someone will look you in the eye I think a lot of kids find it difficult to talk about because their parents don't even want to talk about it. They shy away from talking about it. So that's it. We just got to stop that because we live in a day and age where just like my nine-year-old, they're going to get answers to things they want. Is it coming from you who is ultimately responsible for them and loves them the most? That's going to communicate in a way they'll understand it. Or are they going to go ask Siri? Who's it coming from Siri? That's yeah. a really powerful story too that you shared. Yeah. Like that's a, like how many times you hear your kids like, Hey, uh, Siri, me. what's uh 42 plus three divided by six. I'm just yeah. like, it's like Alexa. Ask what else it. are they asking? Yeah. Or they're yeah. like, Hey Siri, what's this thing I keep hearing about pornography? Right. We're, we're just teaching. And whether they're doing it now, we're teaching them that that's where they go for answers. Yep. The answers are in our home. Correct. So anyway, so, that's it. Well, so if Danny, they're out there and they're suffering, I just beg them, ask for help and do something. There's no decision or choice that you're going to make that's going to be worse than what's going on already. So remind people where to find you. So your living proof, spelled Y-O-U-R, living proof. I have that on my website and it's at your living proof on Instagram also. Um, I have some really cool stories on there as well, but the way to contact me th- is through there and if it's just a question you have or if it's help you need, I, I'm i hoping that one of the darkest, most difficult things to ever happen in my life will become a tool and resource for others. So please reach out. Cool. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, that was incredible. You.